Well, this morning, I want to turn our attention to uh, a topic that we've covered actually in the very first series that we ever went through as a launch team. For those of you who are, who are part of our original launch team of our church plant, the very first series I ever taught was entitled A Heart Prepared to Plant. Uh, if you haven't heard those messages, they're online on our website, on our podcast, and I would encourage you to go and listen to those because they really lay a foundation for who we are as a church and why the church matters. One of the topics that we covered in that series was a subject that I knew would be important for us as a, a church at that time, but I had no idea just how crucial it would become in the months ahead. I think it's safe to say that changes have taken place in our country and world that our pre-COVID selves would not have believed. Can you affirm that? While there have long been practices and beliefs um, in our country and held by our government that we would find morally unacceptable, we've largely had the freedom to make our own decisions as Christians in those areas. But now many Christians across the United States and many within our own congregation are having to make decisions that potentially threaten their livelihood and financial security. And this very real pressure has made it essential that we revisit this topic that we covered a couple of years ago on issues of conscience and Christian liberty. How do we make decisions about issues that are not clearly addressed in the Bible? And how do we maintain unity and love for one another in the church when our opinions differ regarding decisions on matters of liberty? If you're not familiar with the topic of liberty, I'll give you a definition here in just a moment, but let me be clear that it's not my intention this morning to tell anyone what decision they ought to make about any issue of liberty. Obviously, the most pressing issue of conscience that many are having to wrangle with right now is that of vaccines related to COVID. And for me as your pastor to place upon you a command about the vaccine or any other issue of liberty would be to go beyond the scriptures and therefore to violate uh, my authority in your life. I'm not going to do that. I would never do that. So my aim in revisiting this this morning is not to tell you what to do on any given liberty, but rather to say, what does the Bible say about how we make decisions in areas where the Bible is silent, when it doesn't give us a clear command? And how do we remain unified as a church when we make different decisions in these areas? Also, let me say, I'm not addressing this issue because there is this major problem of disunity in our church. In fact, quite the opposite is true. What I've been encouraged by is, is how our church, though there are many on different sides of this issue, uh, has remained unified and continues to do that. And so really, this message is more of a, in the idea of Paul to Timothy, of excel still more, continue on. Now, this will be a review for some of you who were with us a couple of years ago, but perhaps brand new for others. But I think it's important for us this morning to take time and to consider this issue. Now, I could do a whole series of messages on this. Um, I'm not going to do that because we don't have time to do that. I want to get to uh, ultimately to the book of Hebrews for our next verse-by-verse uh, -verse exposition. But I do want to give you an overview to equip you to make decisions in these areas. The Bible is a gift from God. We celebrate that every Sunday when we preach from it. Perhaps we celebrate it with a, a, special, uh, a specialness this morning because it's Reformation Sunday. and In a large way, the scriptures were recovered during that time. And we have them clearly in our own language because many men gave their lives to translate it into the common language. Now, there are many areas of scripture that are very clear. Clear commands that we are to do this and we're not to do that. For example... You shall not murder. It's a clear command. You shall have no hint of sexual immorality. It's a clear command. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Clear command. We have several clear commands in the scripture. In fact, the majority of our life, I would say, is, is bracketed by clear commands of scripture. We do the things we do because God says to do them. We refuse to do other things because God says we cannot do them. But there are these issues on which the Bible is silent, at least in the sense that it does not give you a direct answer to the question. So this is an area of liberty or issues of conscience. Here's a definition for you. What is an issue of conscience? 
It's any issue about which the Bible gives no clear command, either positive or negative. As we've seen, the Bible gives us clear commands, but there are areas in which there is no command. When we think of that, though, don't think that the Bible has nothing to say that's helpful in these areas. The Bible is sufficient. We have everything that we need for life and godliness in the Scriptures. What that means is there are principles in Scripture that can inform our decisions to help us make wise decisions even when the Scriptures do not give a clear command to do this or do that. Our goal this morning will be to study Romans 14 in particular and understand how we make these decisions. Now, if you want to go deeper into this issue of of Christian liberty or issues of conscience, here are the primary texts of Scripture that you'll want to study. We really find it in two particular areas. 1 Corinthians chapters 8 to 10, and then Romans 14 and the first part of Romans 15. Those are the primary places where you'll find this in the Scripture. But what you'll find is one clear unifying theme on how we're to think about matters of liberty. And it's this, love Christ and your brother more than the use of your Christian liberty. Love Christ and your brother more than the use of your Christian liberty. We're going to look at three considerations this morning about this issue. Consideration number one I've called setting the context. Setting the context for the discussion as a whole and for Romans 14 in particular. Because you have to understand the book, in the book of Romans, starting with chapter 12, verse 1, there's a major shift. The first 11 chapters of Romans deal with doctrine, particularly the gospel. What is the gospel? And Paul goes into that in great detail for 11 chapters. But beginning in chapter 12 of Romans, Paul then turns the corner to application. And he says, now that we understand the gospel clearly, how should that affect our lives? What are the natural implications of a life transformed by the gospel? So I'm just going to put up on the screen a quick Cliff Notes version of some things that Paul says leading up to chapter 14. Here are some of the natural effects of the gospel on a Christian's life. They'll be transformed by the renewing of their mind. They're they're not to think too highly of themselves or to love others through the proper use of spiritual gifts. In verses 9 to 21, he talks about what love looks like in the church. In chapter 13, he begins by saying that we should love God by submitting to the authorities in our life. He goes on to say, love your neighbor and love God by putting off sin and putting on Christ. Then in chapter 14... He goes to a different topic about how the gospel transforms our lives, and he says, love others by exercising your liberty with wisdom. I want us to read in Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, we're going to read the first 12 verses. We won't spend as much time unpacking these verses, but they lay the context for what comes next, and so we need to understand them. This is Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Verse 5, one person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not for the Lord he does not eat. And gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? 
Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, there's a lot there. Let me break down for you what's happening. I need to give you the situation in Rome. What's happening in Rome that prompts Paul to write what he writes here? Understand that the church in Rome was made up of both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians trying to live in harmony and fellowship with one another. The Jews, for the most part, were still convinced that there were certain aspects of the Mosaic law that were in effect, that they had to keep. The Gentile Christians, on the other hand, were convinced that the law had been fulfilled in Christ, and they had no previous attachment to the law before because they weren't Jewish, and so they didn't live under the law. They didn't practice any of the law. And you can imagine how this could have caused tension between the two groups when they came together for worship, when they had fellowships together, when they went to one another's home. Paul breaks down Christians into two categories in this text. Now, don't be offended by this. This is just Paul's definition. We'll talk about it. First of all, he says there's the weak brother. The weak brother. He talks about this in chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. The weak brother, he says, except the one who is weak in faith. Who is this? This is the brother, according to Paul, whose conscience is not yet fully informed by the Scriptures, and therefore he feels convicted for, a, for something as sin that God has not commanded. It's not actually a sin, but he feels convicted that it's a sin, and therefore he cannot do it. This is who Paul calls the weak brother. Now, in chapter 15, verse 1, look at that verse. We didn't read this. It says, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. This is the strong brother. The strong brother, in context, is a Christian whose conscience is more fully informed by the Scripture, and therefore he understands that this, thing, that this action, whatever it is, is not inherently sinful and that it's okay for him to practice. Those are the two brothers that we'll go back and forth between throughout this text. Now, there were two issues of the Mosaic Law that were particularly a problem. Now, stay with me because understanding this context is what's going to help us apply this in our context. If we don't understand what's happening there, we won't understand what's happening here. There are two aspects of the Mosaic Law that Paul mentioned in those verses we read in chapter 14. The first one was the dietary laws, particularly the purchase of meat. The purchase of meat for a Christian, a Jewish Christian at this time, was very difficult. Because when you go to the meat market, you have no idea, A, is that meat from a clean animal... B, has it been processed? If it is from a clean animal, has it been handled in the way that's prescribed in the Mosaic Law? And then thirdly, was it sacrificed to a pagan idol before they brought it here to sell? For the Jew, all of those are a problem. And so what many Jewish people were doing in order to to not sin against their conscience and sin against God is they became vegetarians. It was that extreme, right? That's pretty extreme. They became vegetarians. You know what? I'm just not going to eat meat. Because I I can't know. And yet, on the other hand, you have the Gentiles who are buying the T-bone steak and they're bringing it home and they're grilling out and having everybody over for a barbecue. You can see the problem. You have one Christian convinced he must be a vegetarian to be faithful to God. You have other Christians who are saying, hey, we have liberty and we can eat meat. You can see how this would be a problem in our own church. If If this half of the room believed it was sinful and this half did not, every fellowship we had would be a major problem. Everyone would be sitting there, some with their salads, judging those eating babe's chicken, those with babe's chicken feeling sorry for the people eating salads. But we would all be judging one another in our hearts. That's what's happening here in the church. It was a major issue. But there was a second issue in the Jewish law that was a problem, and it was the recognition of certain holy days. Certain holy days. Remember the the Sabbath laws. If you've read the Leviticus and Deuteronomy, there are many different laws connected to the keeping of the Sabbath day, as well as certain festivals and feasts that the Jewish people were commanded to keep. And these Jewish brothers were still convinced that they had to keep these Sabbath prescriptions and even the Jewish special holidays. So this would have been no small problem as well, because the Gentiles obviously have no connection and no history with any of these holidays. Uh, In fact, they're wanting to get away from their old pagan holidays and, and so they're not 
really excited to live under these legalistic standards. But what I want you to see is that Paul does something very interesting in Romans 14. Rather than just coming out and saying, okay, this side is correct and this side is wrong, he gives them a philosophy that's a Christian philosophy, how to think biblically. He doesn't just come out and say, okay, do this and don't do this. He says, think this way, and it will help you to make a Christ-like decision. You see, this is important for us to understand because many Christians go to the text of Scripture because they want to practice something that they felt bad about for a long time, and so they go to say, do I have liberty? They're trying to find how they can practice their liberty to the, the nth degree without crossing over the line. That's not what Paul is doing. What Paul is doing is saying, let's stop and think about this issue. Let's stop and think about this issue and how it connects to the church how it connects to Christ, how it connects to our testimony in the world, and how it connects to our love of one another. Now, that's a perspective that is crucial for us to have as well. That's the setting. That's the background behind Romans 14. Now let's look at consideration number two, and that is that love guides liberty. Love guides liberty. We're going to read now the rest of Romans 14, beginning in verse 13, and we'll slow down a little bit, and these will be the verses that we focus on this morning. Romans 14, 13. He says, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord that Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your neighbor, brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. And happy is he who does not condemn himself and what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. Obviously, there is a lot of material here. We won't be able to dive to the depths of what Paul says, but we can get to the heart of it and apply it to our own situation. He begins with the word, therefore, based off of everything that he said in the previous 12 verses. And he says, here, here then is the judgment. Let us not judge one another anymore. Stop making sinful judgments about one another over matters of conscience, over issues of liberty. Stop looking down on one another. But rather determine this, not to put an obstacle in a brother's way. He tells them instead to make an intentional decision to care more about the spiritual welfare of their brother or sister in Christ than their own personal liberty. In short, he says, stop arguing about who's wrong and who's right and start thinking about how you can accommodate your brother selflessly for the sake of Christ. Now, he's probably talking here initially more to the stronger believer, and he says, I know that nothing is unclean in itself. Now, with that statement, Paul essentially agrees with the stronger brother's position. What he's saying is, it is true that the dietary restrictions are no longer in place. Acts chapter 10, as well as other places, Jesus has fulfilled the law, and that is no longer in place for the Christian. Paul's point is crucial for us to comprehend because we're tempted to misunderstand this in our own context sometimes. There, there have been all these diet fads that have popped up that are sort of Daniel's diet or the Levitical diet or a holier way to eat. And understand, if, if you want to eat those things, you can eat them, but just don't think that you're doing something holy or something that pleases the Lord by doing it. Because what, what the point is here is that there's nothing inherently evil about the food itself, 
In fact, even under the Mosaic Covenant, it was never that the animals themselves were inherently sinful, that there was something in them that was truly unclean in and of themselves. It was that people became sinful by disobeying God. God had set apart Israel to be his special nation, and that meant there were regulations and ways that they lived that were to have all eyes on Israel. This is a set-apart people, and that's why it was sinful for them to break God's law and to do these things. But Paul is just acknowledging, look, in and of itself, there's nothing unclean about the meat. But he doesn't stop there. Now he says something really interesting. Don't miss this. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Now that's a very interesting statement. To him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Now let's be clear first of all about what Paul is not teaching. Paul is not saying that we determine what is and is not sinful simply by what we think about it. God alone, listen to this, God alone is the one who determines what is sinful and what is not. Okay? Paul is saying that even if an action in and of itself is not sinful, that is God does not believe it to be a sin, he's not commanded it, it's not actually sinful, but you fully believe in your heart that it is sinful and then choose to do it, you are in sin. It's an interesting concept. Why? Why would God say through Paul that an action that's actually not sinful in and of itself becomes sin if I think it's sin and then do it? It's because God has always been concerned primarily with the heart. And so when, when you think something is sinful and you do it anyway, it was an act of rebellion in your heart. That's the issue. You chose to rebel against God. Even though you were misinformed about what the sin actually was, you thought it was a sin and you said, I'm going to do it anyway. That heart of rebellion, that's the sin. And that's what Paul is saying here. This is why, by the way, we must never ignore our conscience. Conscience is a gift from God to help us obey him. It warns us when we're about to do something sinful. Now, it is true that we need to constantly be training our conscience with the Scripture so that it's becoming more and more in line with what God's Word says. But in that process, we must never just push our conscience aside. To do so could could create this pattern where you are constantly pushing your conscience aside and you will end up searing your conscience where you will no longer hear its voice at all. Never sin against your conscience. Never just push your conscience aside. But this does bring us to an important distinction. Paul would have us distinguish between strong preferences, on the one hand, and sinful disobedience. Strong preferences versus sinful disobedience. So for us, in our context, when we're we're trying to decide, is this really an issue of conscience... We have to say, is this something I just really want to do or don't want to do, but I don't think it's a sin? Or do I legitimately believe that if I do this, God will hold me accountable as a sinner, as guilty? Because that's what Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about strong preferences. The Jewish people were not becoming vegetarian just because they said, you know, I don't care for meat, so I'm not going to eat it. No, they, they thought it was sinful. And that's why they were becoming vegetarians. But now, in chapter 14... Paul turns his attention specifically to the stronger brother and gives direct instruction. He says, For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. God's call to all of us is first and foremost to love him and then to love others above ourselves. We need to be clear again about what this verse is not saying. Paul is not saying that the stronger brother is forbidden to make use of his liberty at all times. He's not saying categorically, uh, simply because you, you might hurt your brother, just never do this. That's not what he's saying. Instead, his point is that the stronger brother must have discernment in the exercise of his liberty so that he does not use it in a way that draws a weaker brother into sin. For example... Let me just give you a modern contemporary example. Let's talk about alcohol for a moment. Drinking alcohol in moderation is not condemned in the scriptures. Drunkenness is clearly condemned. Drinking alcohol in moderation is not condemned. But it would be sinful 
for a brother to encourage another Christian who either struggles with drunkenness or believes it is a sin to drink any alcohol whatsoever to join them from a drink. Because now you're encouraging that brother, just don't worry about your conscience. Your conscience, it's oversensitive. It's not a big deal. Just come on, just have a drink. It's not a big deal. That's exactly what Paul is saying. Don't do. Because now you're encouraging that brother to do something they believe is a sin. Whether or not it actually is a sin is a different question. Remember Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Paul makes a very pointed statement at the end of verse 15. He says, do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. When we put it in that language, it makes it sound really silly, doesn't it? I'm holding on to this thing I really want to eat or drink. And I'm holding on to that in a way that's harmful to my brother. I would rather have this food or drink. It's so important to me that I'd rather run over my brother and drag them into sin by tempting them into sin than to just forego it in that situation. It shows us the ugliness of our selfishness. Christ gave his very life for this brother or sister. And I can't lay down something to eat or drink for their benefit. And this is a command that applies to every Christian liberty. Now, at this point, Paul says something that, in verse 16, can be taken different ways. He says, therefore, do not let what is good for you, or for you a good thing, be spoken of as evil. There are different ways that we could take this, but I believe the best way to understand this is, is Paul is stepping outside of the situation and saying, look, when Christians begin to wrangle over these things and we, we selfishly pursue our own way and I have to have my liberty when I want it and how I want it and we run over one another over these issues, the outside world looks in and says, what's different about those people? They're just like the world. They're just like CNN or Fox News. They're just run over anybody they want to. There's no transformation there. Paul says, don't let what is a good thing be spoken of as evil. As, as you begin to serve one another and care more about your brother than your liberty, that's different. When we're laying down our preferences, even legitimate things that we could enjoy and not be in sin, when we say, I'm going to lay that down for my brother in this situation, that's, that's Christ-likeness. But when we sinfully push the pursuit of our liberty to the point that it causes disunity in the church or tarnishes the name of Christ, that opens up the church to ridicule. In verse 17, he makes a very pointed point. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. He brings us back to the spiritual reality of what God is doing in our life. God's not called us to salvation just to eat certain things and drink certain things, but to pursue Christ, to be more like Christ, to be conformed to his image. The Christian's main pursuit is the pursuit of righteousness, of love, of peace, of joy. This is what God has called us to. And so you see now, this is a, this is a biblical perspective. Paul is doing much more than just saying, eat this or don't eat that. He's saying, think about all of these things. Think about it in, in relationship to Christ. Think about it in relationship to your brother and their spiritual good. Love for God and others must guide the use of our liberty. We have to resist the cultural mantra that says that life is about the pursuit of our own personal happiness and our own personal comfort, and you do you, and whatever makes you happy, that's what it's all about. Understand that while God does intend for us to enjoy the good gifts he's given us, we see that in the book of Ecclesiastes, we are to enjoy the good gifts he's given us in this temporal life. We're never to enjoy them uh, to the detriment of our testimony or of one another. And here's the result. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. He who in this way serves Christ. That is, he who is committed to righteousness and peace and joy and is willing to lay down their, their, their selfish pursuit of liberty for the benefit of a brother. 
He says, this is acceptable to God and approved by men. He says, even, even men can see that this is, this is caring for others. This is love. This is humility. This is kindness. It reflects a heart that's transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Life is no longer about me, my rights, my happiness. It's about Christ and his glory and his gospel and the spiritual welfare of those around me. This is the Christian life. This is the true measure of spiritual growth. Paul continues, so then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Does it bring peace? Does it bring unity to the body? Does it build up a brother in Christ? Those are the questions we have to ask. He returns again to what he said previously. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. Paul repeats what I said earlier, but this time he focuses not on the weaker brother sinning against his conscience, but the stronger brother who can, can cause his brother to stumble into sin by selfishly exercising his liberty without wisdom. Don't tear down the work of God for the sake of food. He agrees again. All things indeed are clean. They're not sinful in and of themselves, but they're evil for the man who does it and gives offense. Paul continues on with this overarching truth. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. Notice again, Paul doesn't say that these things are wrong in and of themselves, but he says it's good for the stronger brother to lay aside their liberty for the benefit of their brother. Just because we're free to do something doesn't mean we should do it. In fact, what Paul is saying here is that we're actually not free to use our liberty when it causes another brother to sin. That liberty is off limits if it's going to drag another brother into sin in that situation. Verse 22, the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. And then he adds, happy is he, that word literally is blessed, blessed is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. We're to have our own conviction before God on these things, and we're to be sure that in our conviction we're not actually doing something for which we would be condemned, either in the way that we're doing it or by sinning against our conscience and thereby incurring guilt. And then he adds, But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. Again, Paul reiterates the same principle. To sin against your conscience, to do something that you believe is sinful, even if it's not prescribed in Scripture, is sinful in that instance because it's an act of rebellion against God. Now, this is the foundational text. These, these are the truths that we have to consider as we begin to think about our own contemporary context. I know that we, we went through that text very quickly, much more quickly than we would if I was teaching through this passage um, in a normal setting, but I just wanted to give you the overview because now what I want to do is move to a third consideration and camp out here for a moment. And that is that Scripture guides liberty. Scripture guides liberty. At this point, we've primarily just focused on the original setting, the things that Paul was dealing with, that the Jews were dealing with, the Gentiles were dealing with. But now it's time for us to take the principles that we've learned from this text and kind of create a grid through which we can take the decisions we have to face in life on issues of conscience and come to a wise, God-honoring decision. Ultimately, that's my goal this morning, is just to equip you with the principles of Scripture to think through these issues in a way that would honor the Lord and give you clarity. Now, as you think about it, you may have a hard time coming up with a list of, well, what kind of things in our current contemporary life are issues of conscience, things that we have to wrangle through that we don't have a clear command, positive or negative, about. So I'm going to put a, a sample list on the screen for you. Uh, this is not at all exhaustive, but it gives you, at least in your mind, some of the areas that we've got to be very careful to think biblically about and think about one another rightly. Things like schooling options. How are you going to school your kids? Drinking alcohol in moderation. The use of tobacco products. I'll, I'll leave that there for you to read that list for a few moments. But these are the kinds of things that we have to think about in our own context. Now, I'm not going to go through each of those issues. Obviously, I can't do that. Um, but, but I do want to take what Paul has said in Romans 14 
and, and I want to give us a grid. Seven principles. Seven principles taken from what Paul has said here and, and some from, from 1 Corinthians 8 to 10 that will help us have a grid for making biblical decisions. Now, with that in mind, principle number one. All of these are drawn out of what we've just discussed. Principle number one. What's one of the first things you should think about as you try to make one of these decisions? We must love Christ more than our liberty. We must love Christ more than our liberty. Time will not allow us to go to every single text that I would like to mention. So just write down 1 Corinthians 9 verses 1 to 27. There Paul explains that he is willing, willingly chosen to work a secular job to support himself when he could have taken uh, payment from the churches that, that he served. He chose not to do that because he didn't want people to say he was in the gospel ministry for money. And so he set that apart. His concern was, was so great that people didn't miss the gospel and the glories of Christ over financial issues. He said, look, even though I have a right, I'm just going to work with my hands and I'm going to forego my right to that financial benefit. We, at the same time, must think primarily about the glory of Christ, love of Christ, as we think about our liberty. Principle number two, we must not judge our brother's spiritual state based on issues of liberty. We saw this in Romans 14, verses 1 to 4. He says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Listen, whether you fall on the side of the stronger brother or the weaker brother, and honestly, that'll probably depend on the issue at hand. In some issues, you may be the weaker brother. In some issues, you may be the stronger brother. But wherever you fall on that spectrum, you're going to have a temptation to judge people on the other side, to think lowly of them as either unholy or uneducated on that particular issue. But Paul condemns that kind of thinking clearly here in verse 1. He says, accept the one who's weak in faith, and not to pass judgment on him. This can often show itself by disassociation or, or jokes or inward thoughts of pride about that person or the group of people. For the stronger brother, there's a warning here that it's not your job to convince the weaker brother of your position. It can be very tempting to see the, the weaker brother as just a poor, bound soul whose, whose conscience needs to be liberated. Let me just come alongside and, and liberate his conscience. God has not called you to do that. Paul says, accept him. Accept the weaker brother. Now, if a brother asks your opinion, certainly we can have calm, loving discussions about these things. Paul's not saying that. If a brother asks your opinion and, hey, I see that you make this decision, help me understand, you can have calm, loving, respectful conversations but we're not to be wrangling and debating one another on these issues. There's a third principle here. Principle number three, we must be willing to forfeit the use of a liberty for the sake of our brother. Be willing to forfeit the use of our liberty. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 to 13, Paul goes on there to say that he would, he would become a vegetarian, vegetarian himself if that's what's required to not offend a brother. Now, if you're like me, that, that's like the ultimate act of love right there. Like, I love all of you. Becoming a vegetarian for you, I'm going to have to really pray about that, okay? But Paul says, I'll just quit eating meat altogether if that's what's required, not to offend my brother. This is the context, by the way, where Paul says, I become all things to all men. What he's saying is, I, I look at the situation that I'm in, and I seek not to put a, a stumbling block in the way of a person for the sake of the gospel. If that means I need to eat a salad when I'm with you, I'll eat a salad for the sake of the gospel. That's what he's saying. Principle number four, we must care more about the unity and reputation of the church than our personal liberty. We saw this several times in the passage we read, Romans 14, 13 to 21. This idea of, of don't let what is a good thing be spoken of as evil. So we have to watch our discussions with other believers about these issues. It's one thing, as I said, to have a private, open, loving conversation. It's another thing to go, to go to war with one another, debating these things. You you and I both know that sometimes it's the most dangerous situation is not when you're with someone that you disagree with, but when you're with someone that you agree with. 
We get in a group and we realize the whole group has the same perspective on this issue. And so we feel very free to talk about it. And next thing you know, we're, we're, we're bashing this group or joking about that group or laughing about this group. And we're stomping all over what Paul has said not to do in this text. Listen, if you're a member of this church and you're with a group of believers and a discussion comes up and it becomes a heated debate over one of these issues or, or a laughing matter about other people, just lovingly shut that down. Shut it down. Say, not, not here. Not here. We're not going to treat each other that way. Our concern for the spiritual welfare of our brother and the unity of the church must surpass our desire for any Christian liberty. Principle number five. We must understand that different circumstances demand different decisions. Understand that different circumstances demand different decisions. When I was growing up, I thought that this was hypocrisy. That if I do one thing with this group and I do another thing with this group, then I'm being a hypocrite. That would be true if it was a sinful issue, if you were actually participating in some sinful activity in the secret with this group and then not doing that with this group. But on matters of conscience, that's actually commended by Paul. Write down 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 22, and 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23 to 33. That's where Paul talks about these different instances. If, if I'm with a brother and, and he mentions that the meat that we're eating was sacrificed to an idol, then I know that's an issue for that brother, and so I'm not going to eat it. Paul's saying, I, I, if, but if someone puts it before me and says nothing, I'm going to eat it. What's he saying? He's saying different situations call for wisdom. They call for me to discern whether or not this would be wise or not. Will it bring reproach upon the name of Christ? Will it cause another brother to want to give in to sin against their conscience? We have to weigh those things, and we make different decisions based on the decision or the situation. That's part of using wisdom and discernment in areas of liberty. Principle number six, and this is one that I want to spend some time on. We must use biblical wisdom to determine our convictions in matters of liberty. The truth is, on many of these issues, we have to make a decision because just the practicalities of life. Sometimes it's forced upon us. For some of you, you would love to just hide in the closet until the whole vaccine COVID situation goes away, but your job's not going to let you do that, right? They're going to force you to make a decision, we would love to just stay neutral on these things, but we're not always capable of doing that. Romans 14, 5, at the end of that verse there, he said, each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. So how do we become fully convinced? How do we make a decision on, on issues that by nature the Bible doesn't speak clearly to one way or the other? Well, I want to reiterate what I said earlier. When we say that there's no clear command on these issues, we're not saying that the Bible says nothing that's helpful. That's an actually an unbiblical view of the Bible. The Bible is sufficient for all things. So that means that even though there may not be a clear command, do this or that, there will be principles that we can take and apply to help us make a decision. Wisdom principles. You have to test your decisions against the wisdom of Scripture. Now, while we should never sin against our conscience, it doesn't mean that our conscience is always right. Your conscience is a guide, but it's not infallible. Your conscience can be too strict or it can be too loose. Because of that, we've got to constantly be educating our conscience with the Scripture. This is the standard. This is perfect righteousness, what's laid out for us in this book. And so when I come up against this book and I'm off to the left, I move back to center. When I'm off to the right, I move back to center. But this is the center. And so we constantly educate ourselves with truth. But while that's true... Sometimes it is this pursuit to take wisdom principles and to put them into action that actually brings us into tension with one another. This is where some of these things can get heated. Now this morning I'm going to go where only or even angels fear to tread and I'm going to talk a little bit just for a moment about the specific issue of the vaccine. And I'm doing that not because it's politically motivated. In fact, I'm not a very political person at all. I don't ever talk about politics from the pulpit directly unless it's the scripture talking about government or something like that. Instead, it's actually to help us do two things. One, to maintain unity with one another. 
I think it's actually helpful for us. You know, sometimes we make a decision and we say, this is our decision on this issue, and I just, I know that they're not in sin to do something different, but I just can't relate. I can't understand how they could have that different opinion. I want to try to help us balance our thoughts on this so that we can have grace for one another. Not to change your opinion. I'm not trying to change anyone's opinion. So don't come out of here and say, Dusty said we must. Whatever that, I'm not doing that. Other than be in unity and love one another. You must do that. And so I want you to think about this because here's what happens. We look at the scripture and we, we look for any commands or principles that indirectly apply to the decision we have to make. And we should do that. And then we add to that any outside research that might be helpful, scientific data, statistics, so on and so forth. And then we synthesize the biblical principles with the the worldly knowledge and in the good sense that we have to have to make a decision, and then we make a decision. And the truth is that's exactly how you have to make a decision on the issue of conscience, that that you should do that. Take the principles of Scripture and, and use what wisdom we have from research and things like that, put them together and make a decision. But here's the problem when it comes specifically to the vaccine. Two Christians who are equally committed to the Scripture, who are equally committed to the truth, can come to polar opposite views. How does that happen? How does that happen that two people who both love the scripture and love Christ dearly and love the church dearly come to polar opposite views on an issue like this? Well, here's here's my suggestion. Let's think of it. Let's just walk through this. What are some of the biblical principles that, that we have in the scripture that help us with this specific decision? And I'm going to argue that if we're going to do this rightly, if we're going to make a decision without casting judgment on someone on the other side, we're going to do two things. One, we need to obey the principles that Paul's already mentioned. And we need to intentionally look at the decision from the perspective of others. Not that we have to agree with them. But it is a helpful practice to say, let me just for a moment try to walk a mile in their shoes and just try to see, try to squint and see the perspective, just to help me learn to have grace with those people. Here's why this gets complicated with the vaccine in particular. First of all, we've got to think about what biblical principles might potentially inform this particular decision. As I've talked to people and looked at it, there are typically two biblical principles or commands that come to mind as we try to work this through. Here's the first one. It goes something like this. We human beings are made in God's image, and therefore we should take reasonable measures to protect our physical health. We could take this from Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we're made in God's image, or chapter 9, verses 5 and, and 6 there, with, with God's words to, to Noah about human life and the value of human life. I think all of us can agree with the general principle that we're held accountable to take reasonable steps to protect our health. But when it comes to the vaccine, we have a real big problem, don't we? Because we can use the same principle that we should protect our health to make two very different decisions. Why is that? It's because Christian A can line up 100 verified medical doctors who will say that the vaccine was rushed to market without proper testing and has been proven to be ineffective and unnecessarily dangerous to our health. So Christian A says, that's, that's the, the, the worldly research I need, and therefore I've got to steward my body. I can't put that in my body. Christian B, on the other hand, can line up 100 verified medical professionals who will testify that the vaccine is safe, that it's incredibly effective, and should be taken by all adults to protect from COVID-19. And so Christian B says, see, I've got to steward my body. I've got to protect myself from COVID-19, and this is what the medical professionals say, so I've got to do this. And so you see, the, and then there's the third group that's hiding in the closet saying, just please blow over and get, be, be done. But don't miss my point. We're all trying to apply the same principle. Be a good steward of your body. But it will depend upon what medical professionals you listen to. I'm not a doctor of anything, certainly not medicine. Most of us aren't doctors. Some are. But ultimately, it comes down to the individual person on what authority, medically speaking, you're going to listen to. I can't tell you that. And we can't tell each other that. And that's why we come down on different sides. But there's a second biblical issue that many Christians struggle with. This one's more sensitive. And it is the command in Scripture 
that clearly teaches that murder is a sin. Murder is a sin. We see this, obviously, in several places. Now, some of you may be wondering, how in the world does the issue of the vaccine connect to murder? Well, the connection point comes when, for many when they consider the fact that often um, cells that were taken from a baby that died by abortion are frequently used for testing and sometimes for production of vaccines. Some Christians wholeheartedly believe that to take a vaccine that's been connected in any way, whether it's testing or production, with cells that have been taken from an aborted child is to be a passive participant in the murder of that poor baby. It's important to understand there are many Christians that believe this to be true. If you're here this morning and that's your personal conviction, understand you're not alone. A lot of, a lot of believers feel this way or believe this. And so I'm not trying to change anyone's opinion on that matter. What I would like to do, though, is share a simple illustration that might just help us have grace with each other. For one, if your personal opinion is that that does not factor in, you need to have grace with a person that believes that because all of us can agree abortion is a sin. Amen? It's a murder of an innocent child. That, all of us agree, that is absolutely wrong and we want nothing to do with it. And so you can understand if a Christian really believes that by taking the vaccine they're a participant in the abortion industry, that's a real issue. And we don't want to just blow that over. But also, if that is your conviction, I want to just try to help you understand how a Christian could disagree and still be faithful and still agree that abortion is a sin. This is not an illustration that's unique to me. It's been used several times, but here's how it goes. Imagine with me that a Christian is in a hospital bed, dying from heart failure, and is waiting for a heart transplant. And after years of waiting, the doctor comes in and informs him that a healthy heart has just become available. But the heart comes from a patient that died as a result of murder. Is that Christian sinning to accept that heart? I think that illustration helps us understand how a Christian could legitimately say the murder was a sin and that person who did that will be held responsible by God for that sin, but I am not guilty for that sin to reap a benefit in God's providence of this heart. Understand, again, I'm not trying to change your opinion. I am trying to say we can have grace with each other and there are legitimate ways to think about this as Christians who love the Lord, who love his word, and who love the church. Now, the reason that this issue's been brought to the forefront, the whole reason that I'm even going through it again today is because there are many, even within our own church, who are, who are either facing right now or fear that they will face very soon a choice of either my job or the vaccine. And they're really struggling with that decision, understandably so. And so that brings us to a seventh and final principle. We must never sin against our conscience. This brings us back to what we discussed earlier. When it comes to deciding about an issue of conscience, we have to honestly assess, is this a strong preference that I have? And it could be a really, really, really strong preference. Or is this a sin before God? Do I legitimately say, can I say, with, 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 with no hypocrisy, that I believe that if I do this, God will hold me accountable for sin. If at the end of the day, you come to that conclusion that to do this would be sin in the eyes of God, then you have to follow what Paul says, and you cannot sin against your conscience. If, however, you come down on the side of, this is a really strong preference, I really don't want to do this, but I don't believe it would be sin before God then you have a decision to make. You, you have to decide which preference is stronger, not getting the vaccine or keeping your job. We live in a free country right now, and you can choose to go get a different job. And if, if that is your preference, then do that. But what I, what I want to guard against is when we talk about filing, for example, a religious exemption, I personally feel that you've got to come down to a place where you say, I believe this is a sin. To file a religious exemption is to say, the Bible and the Christian faith forbid me from doing this. The only way that we can say that is if you're in that situation where you legitimately believe that it would be a sin against your conscience before the Lord to do that. In that case, 
a religious exemption may be a good option for you. But if that's not true, if you, if you honestly say, I don't really think it's a sin, then the religious exemption becomes null and, null and void at that point. A religious exemption is not just, I have a strong preference and I'm a Christian, so it's a religious exemption. It's, I believe that I'm guilty before God as a Christian if I do this. So with that in mind, let me draw this to a close with just three admonitions for all of us. Number one, pray for one another. Pray for one another. If you've been wondering why this is such a big issue for some Christians, I hope this message has helped you to understand. We have people in our own church body, as I mentioned, who are having to make some of these decisions, my, my job or the vaccine, and they're really struggling with that. Pray for them. Pray for them. Pray that God would give them wisdom. Pray that God would keep them from sinful anxiety. And pray that God would use this current cultural moment to grow us in unity as a church, to express love at deeper levels for one another than we ever have before. Secondly, in conjunction with that, love one another. Love one another. 1 Peter 4.8 says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Paul's been clear that matters of Christian liberty are never to be a source of division in the church. Commit to loving each other, even others who have the opposite view from yourself. And when I say love each other, I mean love each other with your actions, love each other with your words, and love each other with your thoughts of one another. Thirdly, accept one another. Accept one another. Reject the urge to only surround yourself with believers that believe exactly like you do on matters of liberty. Intentionally serve and fellowship with others in the church regardless of their views on the vaccine or any other liberty issue. And resist the urge to try to debate them into accepting your view. Just accept them as they are. Love them as they are. If they have questions and you have a calm, loving conversation, that's one thing. But don't allow these things to become divisive in our church. And if you're here this morning and you're sitting there listening and you're wondering, why in the world would a person bend over backwards in this way to care for someone else? Why in the world do we have to think this hard with this many principles? It's my choice. I'll just go do what I want to do. The reason is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to Mark 10.45 as it describes Jesus. It says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The reason this matters so much is because we have come to understand that we are not good, but we are sinners before a holy God who deserve his wrath. And that if God was, was just and just gave us justice, we would be in hell forever and rightly so. But God in his mercy has sent his perfect son to live in our place and to sacrifice his life as a ransom to pay for the sins that we rightly committed and rose from the grave on the third day. And the Bible says that whoever ever will repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ will be saved. And not only that, but will be incorporated into this new body, a new family called the church. And when we join the church, we don't just join a club. We are grafted into the very body of Christ. And that means it matters how we think about these things. And it matters how we talk about these things. And so if you're wondering why in the world are these people wrangling this much about this decision, friend, let me ask you, have you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you come to understand that he laid down his life to pay for the sins that you've committed if you will turn from your sin and put your faith in him. Come to Christ this morning and then you will understand the transforming work of the gospel and why it makes us desire to care for one another to the, this minute detail. It's because it's how Jesus has cared for us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we're thankful that your word is sufficient. In your wisdom, you've chosen not to give us a simple list or diagram of every decision in life we'll ever have to make and tell us exactly which way to go. Instead, you've given us the principles of your word. You've given us your spirit to illuminate the word that we might understand it and seek to walk in it. 
God, forgive us for the times when we have placed our personal desires and preferences over love and care for one another. Forgive us in those instances where we've placed our desires above following you. We pray this morning for all who are having to make decisions about these issues that are not easy decisions. God, that you would help them to have biblical wisdom, that you would guide them through these things. But most of all, God, we pray that you would glorify your name, magnify your name in this church by causing us to love each other fervently in spite of different opinions on this and every other issue of conscience. God, help us to reflect Christ well in this body of believers. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.